hppodcraft.com. The drive toward Cape Girardeau had been through unfamiliar country, and as the late afternoon light grew golden and half-dreamlike, I realized that I must have directions if I expected to reach the town before night. I did not care to be wandering about these bleak southern Missouri lowlands after dark, for roads were poor, and the November cold rather formidable in an open roadster. Black clouds, too, were massing on the horizon, so I looked about among the long gray and blue shadows that streaked the flat brownish fields, hoping to glimpse some house where I might get the needed information. That was the first paragraph of Medusa's Coil, written by H.P. Lovecraft and Zelia Bishop, published two years after his death in Weird Tales, and discussed 74 years after his death, right here on the H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com, I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer, and uh, I should mention that the version which appeared in Weird Tales... Well, again, was rewritten by August August Durlath, yes, that's true. August got his hands on a lot of the stuff and made it a little bit more um, palatable, I guess, maybe. Did he? I'd love to actually... Yeah, I don't know, I don't know. This this story, without, you know, ruining anything, I have to say I liked better than than the last one in a way. It was easier to read, is what I'm I'm gonna say, but... uh, This wasn't as good as The Curse of Yig? No. I like enjoyed the reading. <laughs> I mean, it takes a crazy left turn near the end, yeah, which we'll get to, or not near the end, at the end. But uh, I liked it much better than the mound. I although people were writing in to talk about this before we even did it, just to say it was the worst story ever. Yeah, well, I, wouldn't, there was, I wouldn't say that. I mean, the, the, the actually, I think the writing in this story. Maybe we should probably talk about this after we actually discuss it. <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's let's do that. Well, that reader that we just heard was Dave Stinton, who's an old college buddy of mine. Oh, and, Dave. Uh, yeah, you know, Dave. Yeah. We were in uh, an improv group together called Spicy Clamato. And we shot a short film that Dave wrote. Oh, yeah, that's right. We did. Yeah, yeah Blue that's Heat. That's right. Yeah, Blue Heat. He's a great writer, uh, aside from being a good actor. I, I looked at his Twitter account, and I found a couple of things on there that I thought were funny just in the last couple of weeks. One said, infuriating. I guess you can't just dress up as Raquel Welch for Halloween. You have to be sexy Raquel Welch. <laughs> Like a joke. <laughs> and this one made me laugh too. Assuming makes an ass out of you and Ming the Merciless. <laughs> <laughs> Dave's got a blog I like a lot. It's called The Sound of One Hand Withholding Applause. I'm going to put a link up to that. It's got a lot of my favorite stuff on it. It's really good. He's real funny. And Dave, thanks for doing the story. I, <laughs> I think we owe you a good one now. We owe a lot of people good stories. We do. That says something about Lovecraft. I just want to mention before we get into this uh, again that. Coming up April 15th in London is the H.P. Lovecraft reanimated cabaret event that I will be emceeing. Mm. It is now 75% sold out uh, last I checked, which was a few days ago. So if you're interested in going, buy your tickets because it looks like it's probably going to sell out. Can you tell me again what kind of stuff you guys are going to? Yeah, we're going to uh, we're going to have some readings. Uh, we're going to have this great radio group is going to be doing kind of a performance of some of Lovecraft's specific works. One of them is going to be The Temple. We're going to have one of his letters read. There's this guy called HP Lovebox who does kind of a crooning sort of song parody thing <laughs> with a giant squid head. I love it. That's yeah. awesome. It's pretty funny. It's sort of filky kind of stuff, but it's just such uh-huh. a I mean, you can find the guy on YouTube. It's it's pretty crazy. I'm I'm can't wait to to check him out for for real. And uh, we're also showing a an exclusive clip of Whisperer in Darkness, uh, which is supposed to be out 
I think next fall. And we are also showing uh, the other gods animated uh, short. Oh, cool. And a few other things, a few other surprises. But uh, if nobody noticed, the readings finally came out last week. Oh, Chad, yeah, heck, man, I I, I haven't told you. I uh, I sent and I did the 3D. Now, Chad actually does all the production on the readings over in the United States, so I actually have nothing to do with it. It's all it's all Chad's work, and well, Andrew and and Bruce Green as well. I I finally got to sit down and do the 3D. I had my my wife's laptop, my computer, which has really great speakers, and then my iPhone. Yeah, and those were the three. I set them up around me, and I adjusted the sound so you know they were about the right levels and everything. And it uh, was great. It was super cool. It was fun. Cool. Yeah, I'm gonna make uh, Rachel do it tonight. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah, I made Heather sit through it too. It's <laughs> it's really fun though. I mean, I I was worried that it wasn't gonna work out, and um, I don't know. It's pretty cool. I did it with yeah my speakers that come out of my TV and. Uh, an iPhone and an old iPod that we had. And um, depending on where they were in the room and there was a little bit of delay and it kind of made a neat effect. I thought yeah, cool. I was super I'm into it. i it worked out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But good I mean, job. you can listen to them as they are too in stereo and, and I think yep. they came out pretty good. Bruce is uh, awesome and, and Andrew really brings it home. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Lehman. I love Bruce's that He gets so crazy by the end of it. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, he all sounds it. like the, he sounds like somewhere between Vincent Price and the Emperor. <laughs> you know, it's like. <laughs> yeah, he does. Somewhere. He does. And Andrew's always awesome. So. Yeah, yeah. Good job. Uh, yeah, it's it's genuinely his, you know, old man is genuinely creepy. The yeah. way that he chuckles at some of the things he says and stuff really creeps oh, me out. It's, it's good so good. Stuff. Yeah, I loved it when he read it when we covered the story, and so I was uh-huh. really happy that he did all the rest of it too. Let's get back to Medusa's Coil, which, as many people have noted, and and we have as well, it's an awesome title. Yeah, it's a great title. I think there's a metal song called Medusa's Coil. When I was trying to do, Google to do a little research, I I found the lyrics. I assume they took the title and then went off on some totally different tangent with it. But no, the lyrics to the song Medusa's Coil tell you the story. Oh, really? Of Medusa's Coil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will link out to those in our show notes. Please do. It's pretty awesome. But uh, let's. why don't we tell you what the uh, the story is of Medusa's Coil. Basically, as we found on that first paragraph, there's a guy driving around Missouri. It's late. He's in an open car. He needs to find somewhere to uh, get some shelter. Yeah. Or r- rather to get some direction. Yeah, he's lost. Trying to get to Cape Girard Depardieu. And right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's driving around, can't find it. Uh, can't find any houses. He's sort of out in the boonies. He sees this one house, pulls over. It looks like it's going to rain. So he goes over to the house. Totally looks abandoned, run down. Yeah. It's like Southern plantation style mansion. Yeah, but it's in Missouri. And falling apart. Yeah. Pries yeah. open the door, goes in. Hello, is anybody there? Realizes, oh, wait somebody actually does live here and this old guy comes down the stairs and he apologizes oh i'm sorry for coming in your house it's totally rude of me and the guy goes well i'm sorry i didn't answer the door sooner you know really a gentleman this really old man but he's kind of old and decrepit and he has trouble walking he's got to come down his, you, you find out he has some kind of spinal problem and there was a thing here that they mentioned when he came in where he said uh, i started to light a cigarette but i desisted when i saw how dry and inflammable everything about me was and is that I don't remember people making smoking references. This is totally off topic. In yeah. Most Lovecraft stories, and I'm just wondering, do you know is he a smoker? I don't know. I don't know if he's a smoker or not. Okay. Well, maybe somebody else knows. Just yeah. something that occurred to me as I was reading it. But yeah, so he he meets the guy. The guy says, "What does he say to the old man? Like, I, I look, I can't go back out there. I'm not." He gives him directions. Yeah, he tells him where to go, and then he goes, well, look, it's dark, uh, I can't see, because the old man gives him the directions, like, you're going to drive, there's going to be two dirt roads, Yeah, past those <laughs> You're going to see my cousin Eddie, yeah. then you want to you add to totally like that scene in Vacation. <laughs> and he said, uh, and, and, and so basically the guy goes, look, I, I'm sorry, but 
can I stay here tonight? Because it's dark. It's, you know, the sun was just setting. It started to rain. He's like, I'm not going to be able to find this place. Just let me stay. Just give me a corner. I won't cause you any problem. And yeah. the guy was just surprised by it. And he goes, You well, want to stay here? Yeah, yeah. I stay. <laughs> you want to you wanna stay here? Uh, no, no. And he goes, why, well, yeah, why is it okay if I stay? And he goes, nobody's wanted to stay here for many a year. And let me tell you why. And so he goes into yeah. this story. But yeah, he sits him down. We get in the second chapter and he starts telling him his whole deal, how he... He came from Louisiana originally. His, his name is Anton DeRussi. Yeah, Antoine. And he was uh, from a, a, a big family of plantation Louisiana owners. Louisiana plantation yeah, they, owners, right? Yeah, yeah, they had slaves and things like that. He decided to move up to Missouri just to kind of strike out a little bit. And he made this, built this big plantation called Riverside. He marries uh, his cousin in New Orleans. Distant cousin. Yeah, distant cousin. And then she passes away. So he's only, it's he and his son, Dennis. Yeah. She and, died in childbirth. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did she? Oh, that sucks. Yeah. That's right. Uh, well, so he doesn't marry again. It's just he and his boy. He likes his kid. And, you know, it's a good boy. He, he doesn't have any trouble at all having him leave the wenches alone. That's one of my favorite details. Yeah. <laughs> Boy's well-mannered. He doesn't... Um, he doesn't try to sleep with their slaves. So. Yeah, well, not so, slaves. Uh, they yeah. they do have a lot of black uh, people working for them on yeah, the I plantation, but they're they're not slaves because it is the uh, early 1900s. Yeah, Sla- right. slavery's over by then. Jim. Well, I mean, it, you're right. He was class in 1909 at Princeton and and uh, decided he wanted to be a doctor. He goes to Harvard, but then he decides he wants to go out to France, which is their old Louisiana tradition of the family and study at the Sorbonne. Yeah. So he takes off. He goes out there. He's, he's living in the Latin Quarter, and he's making lots of friends with these aesthetes and decadents. Uh, yeah, know, it's, 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 it's really funny the way that Lovecraft. You can tell he's really into that stuff. The way he talks about them and how interesting and exciting they are. I know. Well, when the old man's talking about it, it's just like it's throwaway stuff. You know, they had all them kind of cults that they always ramming around with out there in France with the devil worship and the fake black masses. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Happens all the time when a boy's young. <laughs> They're running yeah. around being, you know, disciples of Gauguin and Van Gogh. Regular epitome <laughs> of the yellow 90s. You know what I'm saying. Anyway, the, you know. He does uh, say the yellow 90s, yeah. He does, he does. Well, you know, the, the, uh, that was my specialty in college. We talked about that. I know. The yellow 90s. And I'm, a sh- and I'm really bummed out that, I, that when I was living in the 90s, I didn't uh, refer to it as the yellow 90s. <laughs> well, it was the, the 90s from 100 years ago. Well. The 1890s. Anyway, when Dennis is in Paris, he uh, is spending time with this guy, Marsh, who he knew back from Missouri when he was growing up. Marsh was the oldest friend Dennis had in Paris, so as a matter of course, they saw a good deal of each other, to talk over old times at St. Clair Academy and all that. The boy wrote me a good deal about him, and I didn't see any especial harm when he spoke of the group of mystics Marsh ran with. It seems there was some cult prehistoric Egyptian and Carthaginian magic having a rage among the bohemian element on the left bank, some nonsensical thing that pretended to reach back to forgotten sources of hidden truth and lost African civilizations, and that had a lot of gibberish connected with snakes and human hair. At least, I called it gibberish then. Dennis used to quote Marsh as saying odd things about the veiled facts behind the legend of Medusa's snaky locks. I don't think this business made much impression on Dennis until the night of the queer ritual at Marsha's rooms when he met the priestess. Most of the devotees of this cult were young fellas, but the head of it was a young woman who called herself Tanit Isis, 
letting it be known that her real name, the name in this latest incarnation, as she put it, was Marceline Bedard. She claimed to be the left-handed daughter of Marquis de Chameau, and seemed to have been both a petty artist and an artist's model before adopting this more lucrative, magical game. Someone said she had lived for a time in the West Indies, Martinique, I think, but she was very reticent about herself. Part of her pose was a great show of austerity and holiness, but I don't think the more experienced students took that very seriously. The femme fatale enters the picture. Yeah. And, and I actually was pretty interested in the story at this point. Yeah, I was too. I was thinking it was really neat. I'm like, whoa, hey, a female character? <laughs> and a, <laughs> exactly. And a cult leader, which I thought was really interesting and exciting too. Yeah, totally. It had almost a, um, I mean, I just imagine this guy's got a son. His son goes off to college. He's writing back home about this goth girl that he met, you know, and, and uh, dad's going, oh, I don't know, but he's in college and that's what happens when you go off to school. You know, you take off with somebody who's crazy and. Yeah, you know he's he's getting her involved in all kinds of cult rituals. It's just typical college stuff. Yeah, you know um, when you're in college, yeah. joining cults. Except he's a little more serious about it than that. He, yeah, he's darn tootin'. He flipping marries her, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, his dad finds out about this, and he sends him a letter and says, "Yeah, I married this woman. I'm going to bring her back to Riverside, and and we're going to live there." And his dad's just like, "Oh man," but okay, you know, I trust my son. He's a good guy. You know, I think he might have been bamboozled here, but. You know, we're going to make this work, you know, because he's, you know, he's a good dad. Yeah, he is. He's a really good dad. Marceline was beautiful. There was no denying that. And I could see how the boy might very well get foolish about her. She did have an air of breeding. And I think to this day, she must have had some strains of good blood in her. She was apparently not much over 20, of medium size, fairly slim, and as graceful as a tigress in posture and motion. Her complexion was a deep olive, like old ivory, and her eyes were large and very dark. She had small, classically regular features, though not quite clean-cut enough to suit my taste, and the most singular head of jet-black hair that I ever saw. Oiled up, it made her look like some oriental princess in a drawing of Aubrey Beardsley's. Hanging down her back, it came well below her knees and shone in the light as if it had possessed some separate, unholy vitality of its own. Sometimes I thought it moved slightly of itself, intended to arrange itself in distinct ropes or strands, but this may have been sheer illusion. She brushed it incessantly and seemed to use some sort of preparation on it. I got the notion once, a curious, whimsical notion that it was a living thing which she had to feed in some strange way. All nonsense, but it, it added to my feeling of constraint about her and her hair. I don't know, man. She sounds pretty hot. Yeah, well, except for that whole hair thing. I kind of like that, dude. That's really cool. <laughs> that her hair seems to sort of move or have yes. some weird texture to it. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm a hundred percent on board with that. That's okay. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, I'm in her because she's kind of a cult leader. That seems kind of hot. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely. Yeah, you know. Everything about her seems pretty good. Yeah, in my I'm, I'm kind of into it. At this point, though, knowing that the name of the of the story is Medusa's Coil, got me a little, turned me off a little bit. I'm like, wait, is her, is her hair actually gonna? Is she Medusa? Like, actually, literally Medusa? I got so excited. You know, I thought maybe the hair would come into. Well, what happened is not what I expected. Right. <laughs> it's not what I expected. No. No. 
Oh man, it is not it what sort I of reminded me of um, when I saw. I think there's a Peter Lorre movie called. Um, oh gosh, The Beast with Five Fingers. Oh yeah, that's about a disembodied hand that stalks people, right? I just couldn't believe that that movie existed when I was a kid. That I, I mean, who would be scared of this? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Like, it's just somebody's hand crawling around. I mean, yeah, I, would, I know. I mean, what would be scarier, a torso with no head, arms, or or legs? <laughs> There's only one thing that can be scarier than both of those things, and we're gonna oh, okay. we're, we're gonna, gonna get in the story. So she shows up with Dennis, and they're hanging out, and uh, Dad's a little skeptical, but he's doing his best, even though he's slightly repulsed by her. And then Marsh writes and says, "You know what? I'm having problems uh, painting, and I, you know, I'm not I'm not getting my my art out, and I was hoping I could come stay with you guys for a while, right? Is that basically yeah. what's going yeah, on? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, he's just having some problems. He's not feeling." write about his art and his work and he goes yeah i want to come come hang out with you and marceline and your dad and just you know chill if that's cool and he's like yeah of course of course yeah we're we're in a chapter three and and marsh shows up and and the dad likes him there was a little quote here that i found interesting it says marsh was a delight to have around he was as sincere and profound an artist as i ever saw in my life and i certainly believe that nothing on earth mattered to him except the perception and expression of beauty when he saw an exquisite thing, or was creating one, his eyes would dilate until the light irises went nearly out of sight, leaving two mystical black pits in that weak, delicate, chalk-like face. Black pits opening on strange worlds which none of us could guess about. That happens a couple of times in the story where he describes somebody's pupils as dilating so extremely. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and of course, this made me start thinking of, you know, Wilcox, you know, from Call of Cthulhu, the artist. Sure. And it also Pikmin. Yep. You know, this is kind of a, a, a theme that Lovecraft really gets into, this sort of uh, really ultra sensitive artist that can kind of see past even the real world and into the, the other. Yeah. And who's exhausted by the commonplace to the extent that they're ready to dive into very strange and dangerous things. I mean, yeah. you know, it's like the, the hound fits into this is well right 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 everybody's really happy that he's there having a good time it's great marsh and marceline seem to be kind of really getting along <laughs> i know this also was interesting this to was me. really cool i was like wait yeah. this lovecraft is writing some stuff about relationships you know like what i know and it's actually it's a little bit of a love triangle it is and it's kind of sophisticated and so you know like uh -huh. i've been to that point and not personally have to deal with with it myself but right. you see somebody like a married person and they start hanging out with this, you know, this other person. You're like, oh, I don't like what's going on there. You yeah. know, some some fishy's happening. Yeah. It almost reminded me of like a, um, a 90s psychological thriller where it's the married couple who are happy and then they take on the young boarder who's like their gardener or something like that. You right. Know? <laughs> yeah. You can stay here with us and help out. And then, you know, and then the, the guy really likes him and then he gets closer and closer to the woman. And, What's gonna happen, you know? Yeah, it's it's good. Yeah. It's really yeah. cool. And then Marsh takes Dennis off to the side and says, "Look, I I need to paint her. She is right. there's something about her. There's something exotic and amazing, and she, yeah. she's inspired me. And I think I can do one of the most amazing paintings that has ever existed if you just yeah. allow me to do this. I must paint her, Danny. Must paint that hair, and you won't regret it. There's something more than mortal about that hair. Something more than beautiful." And that's that's overheard by the dad, right? This whole story is being told from the, the father's perspective, so we're getting all, we're only knowing what he actually knows. Right. But he's got a until it gets taken over later by his son. But he's got like a special recliner that helps him eavesdrop. 
<laughs> it's like yeah. arranged in just the place where he can yeah, hear whatever happens. He does a off. lot of eavesdropping in this story, and he, he's not shy about it. He even says no. in the story many times, he goes, well, I was intentionally eavesdropping this time. Yeah. <laughs> Things like that. <laughs> Things seem to be going okay. You kind of get the impression that Dennis is a little, like, he lays back for a lot. He's yeah. like, uh, I don't like what's going on, but he's not being too aggressive about it. He's like, okay, I guess if you need a painter, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, his dad doesn't like how things are going. Yeah, but the, one of the things I thought was interesting is his dad ne never loses faith in Marsh. Said that Marsh was a good guy, you know, because he knew him growing up as a kid. And he's just, right. that is an honorable man. And I don't think he's doing anything that he shouldn't be doing. But Dennis, yeah. on the other hand, was getting really jealous. The father comes up with, with a solution, a deceitful solution. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> he gets his, his uh, business colleagues in um, New York to make up some kind of thing that needs to be taken care of in person but his dad is sick he's got the spinal uh, problem so he can't travel and so he gets dennis to go to yeah. new york to take care of this problem that doesn't really exist right so dennis is away for months while marsh and marceline are working on this painting together and marceline wants to see it and marsh won't show it to her no and he just keeps working on it working on it, working on it you get the impression it's going to be this picture of dorian gray like thing it's it's going to be not necessarily her but something that she represents yeah, that's exactly. You know, I, 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 when reading it, I was going, okay, this is going to be, it's going to have some power over her. It's going to show, like, I, in my head, I was going to look like Medusa. You know, like, it was going to have the snakes right. and the things. And in the the haunted mansion at Disneyland, you know, the, when you're waiting, oh, line, yeah. there's that, that, that painting that turns from a regular woman into the Medusa woman. You know, that's exactly oh, what I was thinking of. I Fortunately, could never forget the painting. <laughs> Lovecraft's a little bit more imaginative than I am when yeah. it comes to that. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there's there's some tension between Marsh and Marceline because he won't show her the painting, and you know she she seems to really love him, and sort yeah. of you know always be after him, and and there is a thing he he feels a slight repulsion for her, but he wants to capture whatever. The... Now, when on one of these eavesdropping sessions that he's got going on, which I thought was kind of interesting, the father hears Marsh and Marceline talking about mythos stuff. Yeah, that's right. So when he's listening to them while they're doing the, the sittings. Yeah, well, basically, she just kind of threatens him with some kind of mythos magic uh, type of thing. He's being a jerk to her, and she says, hey, now, you better watch it, because eventually I'm going to call up, you know, those old rites and, and get what lies hidden in Yoggoth and Zimbabwe and Relay. So she's just throwing down some mythos knowledge about things, and Lovecraft loves just sticking this stuff in. It's a tick with him. I mean, he's, he's got to bring it in there. Yeah. Even if he's going to make it happen somehow, it's going to be related. A delightful tick. It all comes to a head one day in August when the father, he's having some pain in his back, and so he lays down for a nap. Everything seems fine when he goes to sleep, but when he wakes up, very quiet, and even the servants are gone as far as he can tell, and he sees this stain on the ceiling. This bright red stain. It's blood. That must have come through the floor. Yeah, of Marceline's room. So it's its similar to the picture in the house, actually. Yeah. He uh, runs up to her room and throws open the door. And this is what he sees. It lay face down in a great pool of dark, thickened blood and had the gory print of a shod human foot in the middle of its naked back. Blood was spattered everywhere on the walls, furniture, and floor. My knees gave way as I took in the sight, so that I had to stumble to a chair and slump down. The thing had obviously been a human being. 
though its identity was not easy to establish at first since it was without clothes and had most of its hair hacked and torn from the scalp in a very crude way. It was of a deep ivory color, and I knew that it must have been Marceline. The shoe print on the back made the thing seem all the more hellish. I could not even picture the strange, loathsome tragedy which must have taken place while I slept in the room below. When I raised my hand to wipe my dripping forehead, I saw that my fingers were sticky with blood. I shuddered and realized it must have come from the knob of the door, which the unknown murderer had forced shut behind him as he left. He had taken his weapon with him, it seemed, for no instrument of death was visible here. As I studied the floor, I saw that a line of sticky footprints like the one on the body led away from the horror to the door. There was another blood trail, too, and of a less easily explainable kind, a broadish, continuous line, as if marking the path of some huge snake. That really surprised me when it happened, actually. Yeah. I didn't know I... this thing was going to turn into a gore fest. No, no, I didn't either. It was, it was pretty surprising. I... I... I just thought it would be some kind of romantic, seductress kind of thing, but it, it got brutal. It's really brutal, man. I mean, it's true that the uh, the image of this woman with her naked with her hair hacked off and a boot print in her back, I mean, it's just so horrible. Yeah, pretty pretty ghastly. So at this point, when I was reading it, I was like, hey, this thing's been a little slow, but still, what was everybody complaining so much about? This isn't that bad. I mean, not compared to the last test or one of these other ones that we've been reading. It's still kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I'm, I'm still, I'm definitely, I was hooked, actually, at this point. I was, you know, riveted. So he goes across the hallway, follows the, the, the trail to, of blood and gore and footprints, and opens up the door, and inside he expects to see Marsh, because he figures Marsh is the one that killed her, being that nobody mm-hmm. else is around. But he gets in there, and he sees his son standing there with, yeah. with a knife, and then on the floor is Marsh's body, and he's all wrapped up in hair. And then I go, what, huh? That's when I go, what? Well, I kind of suspected something like that was going on when he talked about that extra trail of blood, you know, that yeah. looked like it might be the trail of a snake. I thought, wait a minute. That's kind of lame. I mean, I was kind of hoping that maybe she she was a snake person or like maybe a snake ripped out of her body or something or, you know, yeah. more yiggish. But no, her hair actually just crawled away. Well, so Dennis starts trying to explain what happened. Uh, you know, he was getting letters that led him to believe that these two were getting too close. I mean, Dennis is crazy. He's waving the knife around, and his dad's trying to calm him down to get this information. Yeah. And so he snuck home, uh, and he let everybody go. Yeah, because he was going to confront them, and he didn't want anybody around. And yeah. so, he, yeah, he took all told all the servants to beat it, and, you know, get out of get out of town. And he yeah. was going to go up and deal with it. And so he went up stairs. So he gets to the studio, throws open the door. She's posing naked. Uh, but her hair is wrapped around her, and Marsh is there painting her. And he says, you know, what's going on? What, you know, why are you – I know you guys are having an affair. And he's like, no, you're being crazy, man. And he's like, show me that painting. And then Marceline goes, yeah, show me the painting. I want to see it. And so he cover, he's covered it up and says, no, no, you, you don't get to see it. And he says, yeah, I want to see it. And then freaking Marsh punches him. And so a fight starts, and he – throws Marsh down and knocks him out and then hears this terrible scream and looks and sees that Marceline has pulled back the tarp and has looked at the painting and she just runs out of the room and then he sees the painting God but Frank is an artist that thing is the greatest piece of work any living soul has produced since Rembrandt it's a crime to burn it but it would be a greater crime to let it exist just as it would have been an abhorrent sin to let that she demon 
exist any longer. The minute I saw it, I understood what she was, and what part she played in the frightful secret that has come down from the days of Cthulhu and the Elder Ones. The secret that was nearly wiped out when Atlantis sank, but that kept half alive in hidden traditions and allegorical myths and furtive midnight cult practices. Oh, you know she was a real thing. It wasn't any fake. It would have been merciful if it had been a fake. It was the old hideous shadow that philosophers never dared mention. The thing hinted at in the Necronomicon and symbolized in the Easter Island Colossi. Which, what? <laughs> yeah, so he threw out some Lovecraftian lore himself. Mm. Which I thought was kind of weird. I'm like, whoa, wait, so he's in the mythos too? Yeah, everybody is. Everybody. Yeah. Everybody. I yeah. guess in Lovecraft's world, everybody knows about the, the Elder Gods. <laughs> it sure seems that way. <laughs> so after seeing the painting, Denny realizes Marceline's got to go. So he runs down to her room and he's going to cause some damage. He's got a machete and he's hacking her up. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, he kills her. He, just, he kills her and he starts hacking her, uh, her hair off. Yeah. And he wants to destroy it, but it's, it's, he can't destroy it. It's, it's really strong and really tough. Yeah, he hacks a braid off and it's kind of twisting around and squirming like itself. And then there's this wailing that's coming from behind the house and he doesn't know what it is. About the time I had the last strand cut or pulled off, I heard that eldritch wailing from behind the house. I don't know what it is, but it must be something springing from this hellish business. It got my nerves the first time I heard it and I dropped the severed braid in my fright. Then I got a worse fright. For in another second, the braid had turned on me and began to strike venomously with one of its ends, which had knotted itself up like a sort of grotesque head. I struck out with the machete, and it turned away. Then, when I had my breath again, I saw that the monstrous thing was crawling along the floor by itself like a great black snake. <laughs> That's the coolest, dude. I don't know. It, it just struck me as lame and uh it but maybe not i mean like if 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 you think about it if somebody if, i mean hair is kind of gross and can be creepy especially if it's like all wet and stuff like if you you know like wet hair from the drain is kind of a kind of makes you yeah. want to wretch you know it's kind of gross it's true i just it's in my head i was imagining this as some kind of like puppet you know from uh, an 80s like a full moon oh you know, right puppet master <laughs> movie or something it's right just, snapping and lunging at them and they're trying their best to make it scary and it's just not you know it's just not scary no it's not i'm just trying to trying to find i'm like okay well, maybe this is scary in some way maybe there's something scary about this and i just need to dig a little deeper but um i no <laughs> i found nothing <laughs> well <laughs> that well is dry yeah the wailing is coming from uh the the servant sophonispa sophonispa yeah 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 she's that ancient zulu witch woman she loved Marceline, and she's back there wailing. And she knows all about the Cthulhu mythos too. Yeah, she's saying like Mars Clulu. Yeah, she knows. Yeah, yeah, Ye Relay. She know all. Yeah, she's saying all that out in big Zimbabwe and old Africa. Africa. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff there. Good Amos and Andy kind of stuff. Yeah. That section. The the snaky hair winds into where Marsh is and chokes him out. Or yeah, yeah, and wraps around his body. And just kind of doesn't let go. Dennis tried to save him because it was because he was knocked out from their from their scuffle earlier. The hair got on top of him and was strangling him, and he tried to pull it off, and he couldn't. And then that's yeah. when that's when his dad showed up. 
he just basically goes, you know, you have to burn the painting, burn the body, burn the hair, burn the whole house, burn everything. And then he looks like he's going to kill himself with a, with a machete. So his dad tries to stop him and then he does. He actually kills himself. And so his, it's, yeah, it's pretty upsetting. I can't imagine what this guy, you know, this guy's thinking. He decides he's going to bury the bodies uh, in the cellar. Yeah, he buries also, them in the cellar. Yeah. And w- with quicklime. Then he decides to clean up the house, tell all the servants and everybody around town that they went on a trip, the three of them, to New Orleans, and then they decided to move back to Paris, and then when the war hit, Denny and Marsh were both killed. So basically, just a big cover-up. But now he should have burnt that painting, right? But he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't burn the painting, and of course he doesn't burn the bodies. He just buried them in the the basement. Quick line. Then the old man describes the painting. Of course she was in it, was the key to it in a sense, but her figure only formed one point in a vast composition. She was nude except for that hideous web of hair spun around her and was half seated, half reclining on sort of a bench or divan carved in patterns unlike those of any known decorative tradition. There was a monstrously shaped goblet in one hand from which was spilling fluid whose color I haven't been able to place or classify to this day. I don't know where Marsh even got the pigments. The figure and the divan were in the left-hand foreground of the strangest sort of scene I ever saw in my life. I think there was a faint suggestion of its all being a kind of emanation from the woman's brain, yet there was also a directly opposite suggestion, as if she were just an evil image or hallucination conjured up by the scene itself. I can't tell you now whether it's an exterior or an interior. Whether those hellish cyclopean vaultings are seen from the outside or the inside, or whether they are indeed carved stone and not merely a morbid fungus aborescence. The geometry of the whole thing is crazy. One gets the acute and obtuse angles all mixed up, and God, the shapes of nightmare that float around in that perpetual demon twilight. The blasphemies that lurk and leer and hold a witch's sabbath with that woman as a high priestess. The black, shaggy entities that are not quite goats. The crocodile-headed beast with three legs and a dorsal row of tentacles. And the flat-nosed Aegean dancing in a pattern that Egypt's priests knew and called accursed. Well, I couldn't do anything but look and shudder. And finally... I saw that Marceline was watching me craftily out of those monstrous dilated eyes on the canvas. It was no mere superstition. Marsh had actually caught something of her horrible vitality in his symphonies of line and color so that she still brooded and stared and hated just as if most of her weren't down in the cellar under quicklime. And it was worst of all when some of those Hecate-born, snaky strands of hair began to lift themselves up from the surface and grope out into the room toward me. Wow. So it's it's quite a painting. Yeah. There's a lot of detail in there. <laughs> but the ending there, the, the hair is actually coming out of the painting. Yeah. After him. Yeah. Like it's somehow the painting is transcended any kind of physical... You know, it's not, it's no longer pain. It's some sort of gateway into another world or it's letting something out or it's representing something in a three-dimensional. It's, you know, it's, it's a super painting. It's a, it's a super painting. Well, it reminded me of uh, The Ring when the girl comes out of the television and All so right. much of her like scariness and her scary figure was based on her hair dropped down over her face, which is a very, 
you know, that's the Japanese ghost right. of look, right? Yeah. You know, hair plays a lot into those type of things. I mean, I remember watching Chinese ghost story and people are grabbing each other with their hair and fighting with their hair and, and that kind of thing. Oh, right? yeah. And in a lot of those movies, I mean, it's used very effectively. It could be, yeah, it could be scary. I mean, if this was done right or told in a different way, I don't, maybe even if it wasn't Medusa, I don't know, but it it doesn't work. It, it, you know, when the hair yeah. clumps together and turns into like snake shaped hair and attacks somebody, yeah, it just right. seems silly to me. Yeah, it's, <laughs> and it is, it is. <laughs> It's it's a it's a braid of hair, you know, squirming around the house. I'm not afraid of it. I'm sorry, I'm no. not. And so you know, it's one of those things. It's like child's play. Child's play is funny. I'm not scared of a doll. I will never be scared of this doll, ever. It just is not going to happen. You know? Really, you're not scared of Chucky? No, it's a oh, doll. Oh gosh, man. Really? I shouldn't have even mentioned it. I'm not. Me. I'm not. I'm not going to talk about it. Did you just pee a little? A little. <laughs> To lock this up, here we go. So the guy, old man says, so, visitor, who's at my house, you want to see the painting? It's upstairs. And the guy's like, yeah, of course I want to see this painting. This is, this, you know, you've been telling me the story. It got, I got to see it. You know, the old man takes him upstairs, uncovers the painting, and then describes it. It's kind of molded over and warped and distorted because it's been there so long. But mm-hmm. it's still really scary and freaky and it freaks out the dude so much that he pulls out a gun and starts shooting the painting <laughs> what he's got a gun no no hint to that earlier in the story and he should have dropped that detail he got held up in east providence once so now yeah, he carries a gun on carries it. a gun all of the time oh gosh so the guy shoots the painting and by shooting it it kind of destroys it it crumbles and the old man goes no what have you done this that's that painting was the thing that was keeping her down there. We got to get out of there. We got to run. And so they start to run and they can hear this noise in the basement. Oh, and because they were in such a hurry to get out, they knocked a candle over. So the building's on fire. And mm-hmm. the old man goes back into the house for some reason. and I don't really care why. Uh, he yeah. goes back in. The guy keeps running out, gets to his car, <laughs> drives away. The sun's coming up. The, he sees the smoke, the fire, the house is burning. It's all over. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, wow, that's a pretty, pretty intense story. I wonder, you know, yeah. what's going to happen. So, he are finds... there are there any horrors left to be unveiled in this story? I mean, there were a lot of horrors so far. There's a couple more final little little tags here at the end that are really going to no. terrify you, Chad. You no, really? Yes. Uh, so he's driving, finds this farm because he doesn't remember where he's supposed to go. Finds a farm and he says to this farmer, "Hey, I'm looking for this. Can you give me the directions?" And then he says, "Oh yeah, it's this way and this way." And he goes, "Uh." Where, where did you come from? The farmer asked him. And he goes, oh, well, I had to pull over somewhere. He goes, is there any houses or anything around there? And he goes, nah, there's no houses. There haven't been any houses around this parts for a long time. And he says, well, what about, uh, wasn't there in Riverside at Plantation? He goes, oh, yeah, that place burned down about six years ago. What? It was a night just like this. Oh, God. It's, that, was, that was, and then I was going, what? It's super lame. And he looks down on his coat, and he sees a gray hair from one of the man, you know, from the old man. So, it was real, but it wasn't real. Oh and, no! Yeah, I know. And then there can only be. There's no other horror that can trump that to end the story. Can oh, there be? Chad! Oh my gosh! Well. Listen to this. It would be too hideous if they knew that the one-time heiress of Riverside, the accursed Gorgon or Lamia, whose hateful, crinkly coil of serpent hair must even now be brooding and twining vampirically around an artist's skeleton in a lime-packed grave beneath a charred foundation, was faintly, subtly, 
yet to the eyes of genius unmistakably the scion of Zimbabwe's most primal grovelers. No wonder she owned a link with that old witch woman Sofanizba, for though in deceitfully slight proportion, Marceline was a negress. Uh, what oh, man? <laughs> that, I couldn't believe. I'm so glad nobody yeah. spoiled that for me. Actually, yeah. I had no idea that this story had an ending that bad. Yeah, that. I mean, that's this is one of the probably one of the top racist things Lovecraft has ever written. <laughs> oh yeah, and this yeah. is a guy who wrote a poem on the creation of you know. Yeah. Oh, I it, know. It, I don't. How is that even remote? So she's a little black. It's more horrible than the witch's sabbat or the um, the hair coming out of the painting or yeah. any of the stuff that is truly terrifying. Yeah, that's it's ter- I, I, it's terrible racist and but I mean you got to remember too Lovecraft is the guy that um, has people setting themselves on fire when they find out that they're great 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 grandfather the girl. <laughs> right, I know, I know, I know. There's some weird we, thing yeah. going on with that with with Lovecraft and about lineage and all that stuff is mm. super important to him and it really. In a strange way, I don't get it. It's really strange. I mean, I uh, we've, we've had a discussion many times where it's yeah. like, it's too bad. It's really embarrassing. I wish the guy weren't that way. At the same time, if he weren't such a racist and xenophobe, he probably wouldn't have created stuff that was about fear of the other and, and that sort of thing. I think yeah. it drives a lot of the horror that Lovecraft does. And in that respect, it sounds kind of mean, but I don't care that he was an idiot. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Or I'm kind of glad that he was a d- dumbass in this respect because... He didn't hurt anybody, but what he did was produce a bunch of really cool stories. Cool stories because he was scared of foreigners, you know. Oh, yeah, it's it was tough, and man, I, I I it was a bit of a kick in the crotch when I read I had it I read it again because I'm like, wait, wait, what? Huh? Does that mean yeah. something? Does negress mean something else? Does because no. I think it means a black woman, but yeah. I no okay yes it does mean a black woman all right uh that's terrible. But I laughed. I mean, I mean, it made me laugh. Uh, yeah. I got. It was just like a big punchline. I did. I, I was. I got mad when I read it. I got really mad at Lovecraft. It's just so stupid. Yeah, I know, and it's terrible. I mean, honestly, dude, if you so you and I read a lot of this stuff, we kind of expectation set. If somebody who didn't know Lovecraft at all and just wanted to read a horror story, they'd be into this, and then the third. T- act would be i can't believe that this story is about a freaking guy who got strangled by a lock of hair this possibly couldn't get any dumber yes <laughs> guess what guess again <laughs> yeah you know what are you gonna bad, do? bad job buddy oh oof. all right so there's a few things i'm not gonna I, i'm done talking about this story i'm gonna pretend sure. it doesn't yeah, exist that's fine. uh but it some background on it uh was like you said it was published in weird tales in 1939 after he died but it was written in may May to August, nobody's exactly sure, 1930. Now, mm-hmm. 1930 was actually a pretty interesting summer for Lovecraft on a personal level. He did a lot of his traveling. He, he went to New York City that summer. He went to Charleston, North Carolina, Richmond, uh-huh. Virginia, Kingston, West Chokin in New York, uh, Athol, and uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. So mm-hmm. he did a bunch of traveling that summer. And he also... Uh, started his co- uh, correspondence with uh, Henry Whitehead and Robert E. Howard. Oh, look at that. So that was the summer that that relationship got started. Well, hey, man, I'm glad we got through that in one episode. Yeah, me too. Our next episode, we're going to be jumping into uh, a big favorite, The Whisperer in Darkness. Yeah, that's going to yeah. be good. 
Uh, that's an old favorite, and uh, and I look forward to talking about it. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. I'm, you know, I'm personally was intimately involved in the making of it with right. Andrew Lehman and Sean Brainy uh, being an associate producer on there. So I feel pretty hip deep in in that uh, particular story. So got a lot of lot to talk about. It's big ones coming up after that is at the Mountains of Madness. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> yeah. Then there's some dreams in the Witch House coming up after yeah, that. Yeah, that's a great and, one. Uh, thing on the doorstep and. Um, so uh, that closes our Zelia Bishop uh, chapter. There's yep. no more of her, her business getting any One thing I did get out of this, though, is, I'll, and this is what I'll leave you with, which is the next time I I don't like a piece of art, I'm just going to shoot it. The next time somebody's like, <laughs> read my screenplay, and I'm halfway through it, and I realize that you know everybody's unlikable and that no, you know nothing interesting is happening, I'm just going to blow it away. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I just wanted to say uh, before we tune out, uh, thanks again to Dave Stitton for giving us that reading. Sorry we made you say some bad words, but you did an excellent job, Dave. Really glad yeah, to have you on the you. show. Thank you so much, Dave. With that, I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Oh, hi, Danny. hppodcraft.com. <laughs> <laughs>